Hi, I'm here with Father Andrew Apostoli. He is a CFR, Franciscan Friar of the Renewal, out of New York. And uh, hi, Father Andrew. Hi, Father Mark. <laughs> I wanted to ask you just a bunch of questions. We'll be all over the place. Sure. But let's start first with uh, your vocation and uh, what year did you enter and how did you know you had a call? Well, you know, actually, I became an older, but I was only six years old, and I was serving my first mass, scared to death, and it was the, the you know, the Latin uh, rite, of course, at the time, and uh, I, I just started to feel a general feeling that I wanted to do what the priest was doing, but that sort of thought never left me, and then through grammar school, I... Uh, you know, gave thought to uh, the idea of being a priest. And then in the eighth grade, I uh, was in a Capuchin Franciscan parish in the Bronx, New York, and one of the friars took me to see the friary up in Beacon, New York. That was where the philosophy and theology students were uh, studying at the time. And I really enjoyed the day there. I felt that the friars were happy, and I said, you know, this is really what I want. And, um, and then I went to a high school seminary. I was uh, 14, went up to Geneva, New York. It was called the Immaculate Heart of Mary Seminary. And that kind of helped me to lay a foundation early in my life to wanting to be a priest and directing me in that direction. So I went, you know, from there I proceeded on to my novitiate and then philosophy studies and then theology and then ordination. Was there a particular priest in your life that, that really attracted you to the vocation? Well, I remember when I was about six or seven years old, uh, a priest was leaving the friary there in the Bronx. He was going as a missionary to Australia. And I remember he came to our house for for uh, dinner, and um, he was close to my father. And he sort of left an impression on me. And then uh, I remember some little holy cards that had a great uh, impact on my sense of devotion that he, he left for us. Then later on, uh, I met when I was in eighth grade, there was a friar who had just been assigned to that parish. And uh, I remember my uncle was quite sick, and I had to go to the parish church to get a priest to come and anoint him. So I remember walking through the streets with him. And, you know, he has his habit on, his sandals and his beard, and, you know, look kind of, uh, you know, I guess uh, made such an impression, you know, to see him doing that. And I never forgot that. It was a very good thing. I was close to the priest, and I lived for a while, a few years in Jersey, and that priest was helpful to me, too. Okay. And uh, what do you think like the challenges today for the priesthood? You were ordained in the 70s, and you've seen a lot in the priesthood and everything. But how about today? What do you see as some of the challenges uh, for priests today? Well, for the priests themselves, um, faithfulness to prayer I think, uh, you know, the, the Bishop Sheen with the Holy Hour, uh, we need something that I think we can identify. You know the, the old saying about you've got to have a fixed peg in a, uh, somewhere on a wall so that everything else may be moving, but that stays. And I think uh, the faithfulness to prayer becomes a very important thing. Uh, secondly, um, you know, to God willing, they get good training preparation for their years as priests and understand, you know, the sacredness of the things they do with the Mass, confession, and, you know, have that conviction formed in them. I think they also need the help of Our Lady. Uh, she has a, a real uh, way of um, guiding her sons in the priesthood. She has a special love, I think, for priests. Um, 
Uh, so I, I think those are two things. Another thing that's important, uh, you know, in religious life, of course, we have a, a support system right there with our brothers and, you know, that we can uh, share with them. And we, we need that kind of encouragement. I think for uh, even for priests in the diocese, diocesan priests, they need some kind of support system where they can meet with their brother priests from time to time. It, it kind of uh, we, we encourage one another. So I, I think that's uh, something that I, I think would be vital. And then for the priest to have cultivated in regard to their own spiritual life um, uh, a feeling of some comfortableness with the idea of prayer. You know, they're not always, it's not always 100% activity. They need to be able to draw for themselves because uh, otherwise what are they giving? They're only going to give themselves or the well will run dry. You know, there's nothing there. How do you pray today? What are some of the uh, ways that you pray? Well, uh, of course, the community has the practice of the holy hour every day, and that's a great, great help. Uh, we also have that little uh, quiet time in the morning. But in my personal uh, prayer, I, I give a lot of favor to the rosary. I'm, you know, having done a lot of research on Fatima, you know, Our Lady said the rosary can stop wars and uh, bring world peace and convert sinners. So I guess it can, first of all, convert this sinner right here. That's the first one. And um, and so uh, the rosary, I, I love the rosary. You know, it, it's, a, it's a basic prayer of, of uh, it's a basic form of prayer with, you know, prayer where we have prayer, what we call formal prayer or prayer of the lips. And then, you know, reciting the Our Fathers and Hail Marys and so on. Then we have the mental prayer, the prayer of the mind with the meditating on the mysteries, which uh, I find, you know, uh, as the years go on, the mysteries mean more and more. And then finally, there's uh, leads to a prayer of the heart so that, you know, getting to know the Lord in a more um, uh, personal, intimate way. You, you know, you need uh, all of those uh, experiences, I think, to support prayer life. And, of course, then come the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know. I, I, I do have, in one sense, uh, I was very blessed when, when I was ordained, when Bishop Sheen, uh, after the, the ordination, he came to dinner, uh, you know, to celebrate the ordination. And he leaned over to me at the dinner and he said, you know, today you have received the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, but isn't it a shame? He said, you have never made a major study on the Holy Spirit. And uh, he said, you studied about God the Father. When you studied about creation, you studied about God the Son. When you studied about the redemption and the incarnation, he said, but aside from a few pages when you studied the Trinity, he said, you didn't make any major uh, study of the Holy Spirit. I I look back and I wonder if he didn't put that in my mind yeah. prophetically yeah. so that I would do some uh, work on that. And I've ended up with five books on the Holy Spirit. Uh, but uh, to appreciate the, the role of the Holy Spirit, uh, that is very important in our prayer life. Well, how, practically, how do you pray to the Holy Spirit in your prayer life? Well, first of all, um, I, I was influenced by St. Francis when I entered the order as a young brother in, in the rule where he says, this is what the friar should above all things desire to have, to have the Spirit of the Lord and his holy working in us. So I used to pray a lot for the Holy Spirit. And um, and then as uh, time went on, I know, for example, before I studied, I would always say the prayer to the Holy Spirit before classes and all now that I teach. I always tried to say the prayer to the Holy Spirit and to, to be very conscious of his working um, in in our lives. Uh, and that, that helps, I think, to dispose a person, 
you know, to listen to his inspirations. Uh, I don't mean anything way out. You know, you got to be very because you can really exaggerate that, and you could come up with some crazy things. You know, if you're not well grounded, that that, that uh, you need to you need to balance inspirations with truth. You know, the ta- sound teachings of the church they they keep you two feet on the ground. You know, you want to start levitating. You know, or, or assuming or presuming that you're levitating. But uh, to pray to the Holy Spirit is, uh, I think, just to ask for his, uh, the light of his um, wisdom and um, to inflame the heart, you know, so that uh, not only do we know the Lord, but we want to serve him. We want to put that into practice. And the Holy Spirit is, you know, is the ultimate spiritual director of the church and of each person. But uh, uh, so that's why I think prayer, we should have at least some prayer to the Holy Spirit being conscious of him uh, in the long run, it seems to me, disposes a person to be able to listen to his inspirations because he's gentle. He's not, uh, usually does not come on in a heavy way, you know, heavy pressure, um, but gently enlightening us, you know. What about uh, in balancing activity and prayer? Are some of the traps you think sometimes our ego and things that we want to do and achieve, and and uh, I kind of find that tension oftentimes in work. It's like, what am I really doing for the Lord? What am I doing for myself? You're right, Father Mark. That is a big uh, temptation. It's very easy to get on an ego trip, you know, and feel, well, this is my thing, and I, I want to make my mark. Uh, no pun there. No, uh, but uh, you know, make my mark on on uh, society, or you know, uh, leave something for people to remember me by. I think we always have to do it for the Lord, and, and the more. You know, his will plays into this. Uh, I think it's very, very important that a, a person in regard to their apostolic work give a careful, you know, uh, review. Is this, am I doing God's will? Like you say, I could be doing it for myself. I could be doing the right thing for the wrong reason, and that's that's not good. Um, and then one of the things that's good, I mean, you know, uh, in my case, you know, with obedience, I have to uh, present to my own local uh, servant or superior with the things I'm doing so that he knows. And, he, you know, I, and I, I think he can sort of challenge me if I'm overdoing it. You know, I often think of the life of St. Francis, and he had a really great balance there. They used to say he spent about a third of his time in prayer, a third of his time with the brothers, and a third of his time preaching and, you know, doing the apostolic works. Something like that. I think helps us to uh, uh, keep a balance in our life when we're not just constantly running. Uh, I do get busy. I know that, you know. But when I'm home, I'm home. I, I don't. Uh, I try to participate in everything in the, in the friary. And um, I always remember a priest years ago. He was describing some men, and it was a Capuchin, uh, one of the provinces, and he was talking about the preaching band that they had. And he said one of the friars was about nine months of the year he was on the road. Now, that's a heavy concentration of work, you know. But he said when he comes home, he's always at everything. You know, he he's fully alive in the friary and, you know, in the life of the friary. And I think um, I think that's a that's a good thing, you know, because there's a difference between what I call, 
you know, the necessary apostolic work, pastoral work, and so on, and what we could call Mickey Mouse work. <laughs> you know, by, that, by that I mean things that we create just to give the impression of feeling like I feel like I'm busy. Maybe I'm deluding, you know, a person could delude themselves, you know, and say, well, the, the, look at all the things, I'm wonderful things I'm doing, but it, it could be of no value or ultimately very little value except to make the person feel good. <laughs> but that's not the kind of work we want to do. We want to do something that's going to be worthwhile with this real need and and so on, you know. I I think also one one other thing I would add, you know, a lot of times in pastoral kind of the apostolic work we do, I think I think a good discerning point is are we being asked to do that? You know, if people are requesting something, you know, it, it almost has um a little bit of the will of God, you know, maybe someone in need, whereas, you know, going around trying to find something I want to do, and, you know, I think that might be a little bit different. Yeah. What about uh, humility? Um, such a precious virtue to St. Francis, to all the saints. How does one cultivate uh, humility? How do you achieve humility? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, number one, if you get a little too proud, the Lord may just pull the rug out on uh, out from under you. I remember, I remember somebody going up on a pulpit. The poor man went completely blank, and he was just standing there for a while, and then he just had to say, I'm sorry, I can't remember a word of what I was going to tell you, you know? Uh, you know, God has a way of keeping us humble if we are getting too much in the, in the way. Um, I think you always have to be conscious. This is God's work. Um, whatever people may say, you know, and people very often are very kind in their remarks and everything, but um, it's God's work, you know. And I, I know me, I, I can't convert anybody. It's going to have to be the work of God. All I can do is maybe say a message, but it's the Lord working uh, through us, and if he uses us... Uh, um, were only instruments. I, I remember I was in Rome for the 10th anniversary of Pope John Paul II. He was beatifying three uh, uh, three uh, blesseds. And um, one of them was Capuchins. I got into that beatification. And I'll never forget um, Cardinal Sudano, you know, after, uh, after Holy Communion, he went into this long, long praise of Pope John Paul, what he had done in 10 years and, you know, all the accomplishments and everything else that he did. And at the end of it all, you could hear the Pope say very softly in, in, in Italian, he said, servo inutile, I'm a useless and un, or an unprofitable servant. You know, and here's this great man who accomplished so much, but he recognized I'm only a servant to God. And that's what we have to strive to be. Once we start letting our own ego get in there, as I say, God has ways of catching up with that. <laughs> you know? Don't clear that up. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> awesome. What about, uh, I, I know I came up on the show the other night on Life on the Rock um, about uh, you know being convicted of God's personal love for us. It seemed like when we get that, we can stay out of the ego and the pride issues more. How does a person come to that awareness? that experience, that God loves them, you know, not just head knowledge, but it's in the heart. Um, how, do, how does the people, how do we grow in that? Well, that's a, a very important topic, very, very important, because so many people today have such bad self-images, you know. Maybe they've ha experienced rejection or a lack of sufficient 
love for for them, you know, uh, so that it's communicated to them even even without words, but gestures, you know, and you know the love of our parents, and you know if that some of that if that love is there sufficiently, we start to recognize that uh, we're lovable. You know, Saint Augustine had that prayer. He said, "God, because you have loved me, I know I'm lovable." And uh, uh, but to to even to accept that, you know, people who struggle with very poor self images often struggle. You know, even if somebody tells them they love them or they're told that God loves them, they somehow can't accept that because there's this negative image of themselves. But how could God love me? You know, I I have these faults or I have I lack so many talents and. They, they, you know, it's it's funny, but people who who get into that poor self-image um, become perfectionists. I always say they know only two numbers from zero to a hundred, and those two numbers are zero and a hundred. <laughs> I mean, they're a total of nothing, you know, because yeah. they put themselves down. But then, on the other hand, to become, you know, perfectionists, they want to reach a hundred, yeah. you know, that that point. No, there's not, there's ninety nine numbers in between, and and. Uh, one has to realize the first step toward any uh, ability to accept the, the love of another is the person has to begin to accept themselves. You know, to the degree we can accept ourselves, we can accept that others will love us. You know, and that and that's a hard thing. And sometimes with healing, uh, uh, sacramental healing can sometimes help people. You know, the peace that comes through confession, um, the Eucharist. Um, at some point, you know, God has a way of breaking through that, and uh, people can grow, but they do need they do need some guidance on that. I, I think that's a very um, critical area because that may be why so many people today drift away from God. You know, they they're suffering with this; they're suffering to accept who they are. You know, and they're wondering how could God accept me? You know, so. We do need a lot of healing in that regard. But, but you know, it, it can come if a person is willing to be open to risk. You know, for these people, it's a risk. And, uh, you know, to risk that let God love you. You know, try to, you know, I've said to many people, try to accept God's love for you. You know, don't resist it. Don't put up these 101 um uh, you know, uh, reasons why God would not love me, you know. And um, it, it can often be mediated, of course, through other people who are kind. You know, and that's why, you know, it's it's so important to be kind to people, you know, uh, you know, because you're telling them you're lovable, you know, and uh, a lot of people need to hear that. I know. I start to appreciate that more in the priesthood. That um, you know, the priest is there for the people. He's there to give them time. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's just kindness. Often, most of the time, it's just listening to them, giving them some attention. Have you had experiences like that in your priesthood? <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yes, I certainly have. I remember one time a lady came to see me, and uh, she must have talked for forty-five minutes. I don't think I said anything. And when it got all done, she said, Father, thank you so much. You've helped me so much. I, didn't do, I felt like I didn't do a thing except listen. And, you know, maybe just the fact 
that she could talk to somebody who would just even take the time to listen to her. And, you know, we could all do that, you know, just to be concerned enough for someone else. The problem is we get so focused on ourselves, my own need. How can I give you that time? You're taking it from me. But I think if we would only learn to be more uh, kind, uh, attentive, uh, you know, willing to give a willing ear, um, to give a loving heart, you know, to listen to people, we'd all be richer for that experience, you know. Uh, Our whole life would take on a joy, peace, and happiness that um, we can't find if we're always looking, you know, I need to get it first. No, start to learn to give it away, and you'll begin to find it comes back to you. You know, right? What about uh, like one's personal growth in the spiritual life? Um, you hear about Saint Therese died at twenty-four, doctor of the church, and just leapt and ran towards God. <laughs> Other times, it seems like you hear just just a long struggle. Uh, is it is it supposed to be quick, or some people is it supposed to be just a long uh, journey to the Lord, or? Well, because Jesus said, to whom more is given, more is expected. Um, the Lord gives his graces, you know, the, te- the parable of the talents, who got uh, ten, who got five, who got one. And I think, you know, the Lord will expect from each one in proportion to what they have received. Um, St. Therese, you know, was certainly blessed to have a wonderful family, you know, uh, when you talk about, we talked about earlier about uh, people um, feeling that they're loved. Well, the relationship between St. Therese and, like, her father was such a loving person. You know, I always think of that beautiful story where she's a little girl and he's walking with her and looks up at the stars at night. And he sees the star formation, look like the letter M, and he says to uh, Therese, uh, I mean, the letter T, I'm sorry, and he says to Therese, uh, Therese, your name is written in heaven. You know, I, I got to think that's got to affect a little girl uh, so much, you know, to hear those beautiful words. And, um, of course, she did suffer later on. Of course, the, the death of her mother sent her into a uh, a depression, uh, at least a general, I don't know, know exactly the te- technical word for it, but, you know, she was a downer for her, and it remained for about 10 years, till she was about 14 years old, that finally lifted. During that time, she went through various trials. We know she got scruples. Uh, she got sickness. In fact, she almost died. Remember, she had the statue of the Blessed Mother that smiled at her. Um, then he, she, the loss of two of her sisters, uh, Paul, the, the older two, I think it was Pauline and uh, I forgot, Marie, I think. And they were the, they had become the mother figures for her once her mother died. And she was super sensitive. By the way, she was also super intelligent. Did you, you know, she was in, she was in school with girls three years older than her and she was getting the best marks in the class, you know. So, and I think there was a lot of resentment against her. And she kept that all in. She didn't want to tell her sisters what she was suffering in the school, but uh, but she was a very uh, she was a very sensitive person, and um, uh, you know all that combination. But but she did have as a foundation, she did have uh, an awareness that she was loved, and there's no doubt about it. And of course, to love God the Father and her whole spirituality gets summed up in spiritual childhood. Mm-hmm. So she had the, she had that tender. 
trusting attitude of a child who knows they are loved. Our culture today, you know, it's very fast-paced and uh, doesn't give a person much time for reflection. And what is your observations on that? Since you've been a priest and been in religious life, the challenges you see for the the normal lay person out there uh, that that really that Satan really gets us by what you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's so many challenges out there. Of course, there are some very obvious areas of sin you know, uh, that people have to be careful of, you know, um, uh, you know, occasions of sin, whether it's people to get involved with, uh, especially sexual situations, pornography and all that. But uh, aside from those directly sexual things, when in the course of people living their lives, you know, the speed that you mentioned, Father Mark, um, the people get caught up with a, like a cycle. It's like one thing after another. They're on a treadmill, and it seems to never stop. And, for example, the, today, how many people get so, they spend so much time in sports, whether playing it or watching it on TV? You know, football games, and you know the proverbial football widows that uh, you know have to put up with their husbands watching. Uh, seven games, and especially today, we got all these television things. We're getting a uh, hundred channels, and uh, uh, and people can so get caught up with these things that these external um, recreations and pastimes and everything, they don't take the time to seriously think about their lives, where they're going, and so on. And that's why you know things like retreats can be uh, such a good experience for these people you know come apart and rest a while as jesus said you know get off you ever hear that saying years ago was a i don't know if it was a movie or why but it was a saying uh, stop the world i want to get off you know stop the treadmill i want to get off i want to take time for myself and uh, so few people appreciate that the quiet you know, how many people, maybe because they're running and running from a lot that they don't want to deal with, they got to have noise, they can't, th- don't give me a time to think, you know, they got to take sleeping pills because, the, you know, it's the only way they're going to fall asleep. So the love of God is just so beautiful and people who think, you know, that, the, you know, a religious person, or by that I mean a, a devout person. I don't mean a religious as, a, as a, you know, in a religious life. But anyone who has God in their life, many people think, well, that must be boring. And everything. Oh, no, that's, that's the real freedom. That's the real love because there's a fulfillment. I always say the world has pleasure. The world has power, money, so on, prestige. But those who love God have joy and peace. And those are two things that the human heart was made for, you know. So I think it's important that people really take time, you know, try it. Go on a retreat. If you have never been on a retreat, get a good place. Don't, don't go to some kooky retreat place where you end up worse than you went, you know. You know, I always remember a brother used to, used to say all the time, I was down and you pushed me further, you know. We don't need that. We need people going to lift us up, you know, guide us in the, with truth, Truth is important. Be faithful to the church because you can't build 
on falsehood. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if you listen to my word and you put it into practice, you're going to build a rock. And when the storms of life come, that rock is going to hold everything firm. But if you, if you, you know, you hear the word and you don't do anything about it, you're building on sand. And when the storms come, everything's going to be washed away. And it's interesting, isn't it? He says the storms come for those who built on the rock and those who didn't. So it's not that only good people have trials. Bad people are going to have their days and, uh, you know, they need to be on solid rock. Now, you, you entered religious life in the 60s, ordained in the 70s. And in 67, the, that was ordained. 67. Oh, 67. Yeah, yeah, right at the oh. end of the council. I was ordained right at the end of the council in 1967. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, I went out and I taught in high school. And, you know, it was a very rough time. You know, a lot of students at the time were disaffected with the church. The Vietnam War was going on. Uh, the Beatles were singing about revolution. And, you know, so it was a, a very chaotic time. In society and in the church, that's when the first rebellion, for example, Humani Vitae, uh, was taking place around that time. And um, people, and then, you know, the priests and religious were leaving in great numbers. It was a very destabilizing time, really. What, like, how did you, I mean, with powerful voices in the church saying, like, or from bishops or whatever, other priests saying, you know, this is the way to go, which is contrary to the church. I mean, was it clear what the church was teaching, or was that confusing itself? Well, I think what the church was teaching was was clear. For example, the, the teaching of Humani Vitae. But the, uh, what do you want to call it, rebellion or the opposition to this teaching or the the distortions that started to come up, Um one wonders why, what was motivating a lot of that. Maybe people were um, just so fed up with what, you know, the, you know, the, the, the things that the, the, you know, the commandments were calling us to, you know. Uh, they didn't want to observe those things, and, you know, so they rebelled. And uh, uh, I remember I was reading uh, Bishop Sheen's book, and it takes three to get married, and he, he said... Uh, he said, you know, someone, a Catholic who uh, goes out and gets divorced and gets remarried and then says, well, I can't be a Catholic anymore because I can't accept the teaching on uh, you know, transubstantiation and the Eucharist. And he said, what that really means is I can't accept the Sixth Commandment. You know, people were living in a way that, uh, you know, they were saying, well, we need this freedom. We have to bring title to this. Uh, you know, to live the way we want. And it was a lot of rebellion. It was... But I don't think all of that was um, spontaneous. You know, I've, I've come across uh, in, the, you know, my research on Fatima and uh, with the Bishop Sheen, his convert, that woman, Bella Dodd, who, who said that she had, as a communist, was actually recruiting men to enter the priesthood, to destroy the Catholic Church, by having them enter, men who had no faith, no morality, and they would cause havoc in the church. 
And she had herself personally recruited between 800 and 1,200 men. That's an awful lot of people. And if you figure when the turmoil after the council, the war was going on, that was another major factor that we, you know, there were, there were these, um, you know, protests in the street, violent stuff. And um, and it was a great upheaval in the society. Um, and I think, you know, if you've got people in the church who are deliberately there only to bring it down, you can see how much they would have added to the confusion. And, and I suspect that that was a lot more than we realize. What what kept you rooted? I mean, through those years, what was something that was just so strengthening for you? Well, I think, uh, first of all, my Franciscan vocation. You know, St. Francis was loyal to the church, and I knew this is why I came. You know, I'm, I'm, we've got these three vows here, poverty and chastity and beauty. <laughs> these knots, that's what these knots represent. And uh, uh, look, I made them, and, uh, you know, I heard Pope John Paul II when he made his first visit to the United States, I remember the seminary I was in, we went down to Philadelphia to see him, you know, my first time seeing the Pope. And I'll never forget his words when he said, the God who heard you say yes does not now want to hear you say no. And, you know, and I realized I said yes, and I've got to be faithful. And um, uh, so, but my Franciscan vocation had a great deal to do with that. Um, but I, I also knew I've got to stand up for what I believe in. Um, they, they, I heard a, read a little story about St. Bonaventure. Um, someone once asked him, if everybody left, would you leave? He said, no, I didn't come for everybody. I came, for, you know, for the Lord. So I said to myself, well, I didn't come to do what they're doing. I came to do what God wanted me to do, you know. And so that was something I, I know I had, a, I think, a good foundation in my home my home life and the seminary, I tried to always do what I thought the Lord wanted me to do. And I was, in some sense, uh, you know, sometimes criticized, maybe too, you know, too, uh, uh, you know, conservative or so. But um, but it's what I believed in, you know, with all my heart and soul. And I said, I'm not going to change for anybody else. I, I can't do that because I have to answer to God for what I'm doing. Well, we'll close uh, with this uh, last question about Our Lady and the Rosary. Um, you've done a lot of research, a lot of speaking. You've written a book on Fatima. Um, why, a person listening to this, why should they pray the Rosary? Well, first of all, you know, uh, when you buy a product, for example, you buy a washing machine, you buy a car, you get a guarantee with that, huh? So the company backs it up, all right? So, uh They'll tell you, we guarantee this car is going to work, this washing machine is going to work, this refrigerator is going to work correctly. But those are human guarantees. When the Blessed Mother tells you this, the rosary is so powerful, can stop wars, can bring world peace, and it can convert sinners, uh, you got her guarantee, and that's heavenly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, Better than Christ. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and of course... You know, my own experience with the rosary, you know, I've always loved it. I was fortunate in my family. We did pray the family rosary. You know, Father Peyton, uh, Patrick Peyton, went around saying that, you know, the family that prays together stays together. Uh, A world at prayer, he said. uh, uh, No, uh, yeah, a world at prayer is a world at peace. You know, that was another one of his famous sayings. So, you know, when the... The Blessed Mother loved that prayer. It was the fact that, as you know, the only thing 
that our Blessed Lady asked in all six of the apparitions to the children was pray the rosary every day. And then you look at saints like, you know, Padre Pio saying the rosary constantly during the Mother Teresa. You know, these these great saints, you figure it's got to work. I mean, these are the these are the professional. These are the the, the superstars in the Lord's lineup, and uh, and so right. And if they're telling you it works, it works. And and I found for myself, it's a, it's a prayer. Pope John Paul gave us that beautiful letter in, in two thousand two on the Rosary, and he said it's a prayer of peace. It begins with an inner peace, peace in the family, peace in the in the world. Uh, it's also a, a prayer that brings unity. Because as we share together in prayer, uh, you know, that's why the, the truth of those words of Father Peyton, the family that prays together, stays together. And one other thing that is very important is that personally, I believe Catholics have learned to pray through the rosary. Because I mentioned earlier in, the, in our little interview, there are three primary steps to prayer. As we begin, anybody basically begins with the prayer of the lips. This means you use prayers that others have written. For example, children, they don't know what to say, so you teach them the Our Father, you teach them the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, and all these prayers that we recite in the rosary. Okay, So that's the prayer of the lips. And then we can branch out to use other prayers, you know, favorite prayer like Peace Prayer of St. Francis, or um, uh, perhaps we like some of the Psalms and so on like that. Now, we go from that prayer, which is the prayer of little children, the prayer of beginners in the Spirit, like real early beginners, to beginning to reflect on, you know, the content of our prayers, uh, the, con- the, the, the things that we believe as Catholics. You know, you begin to reflect on it, begin to f- reflect on our relationship to Christ in the Eucharist and what does it mean that he's present there. Um, and so in the rosary, we begin to re- reflect on the mysteries. And Pope John Paul said that all of those mysteries are from the, the Gospels, the Scriptures. Even the, 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 the Assumption and the Coronation are presumed when St. John tells us in the book of Revelation, the heavens open and I saw a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She got crowned. So the Coronation is even reflected there and her presence in heaven. So... We need to reflect on these things, and Catholics need to do that more and more to enrich their faith. Then finally, what that what those prayers prepare you to do is move to the third uh, third stage, uh, you might say, which is a prayer of the heart, where a person can learn to speak to God spontaneously. Why? Because God becomes a friend. God becomes somebody I know I'm sharing with. And God wants us, the Lord wants us to speak to him that way, you know? And... Uh, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, who was a great writer on prayer, she said, we don't need the wings of an eagle to soar in the sky to try to find God so we can talk to him. He says, all we need is a quiet little place where we can be alone with God who even dwells within us. So he wants to talk to us. Thank you so much. Okay, Father Mark, pleasure.